Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, January the 15th, 2024, MLK Day in the United States. Just another Monday in the rest of the world. Uh, almost two years ago, I had a distinguished uh, British-based American um, political scientist on the show talking about power. Brian Klaus uh, teaches at UCL, University College in London, very distinguished uh, political scientist, uh, done all sorts of interesting things. He had a book out called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. And when he was on the show uh, back in uh, March of 2022, he talked about how a, a scan of Putin's power-addled brain, uh, what it would tell us. It's an interesting question. He's made a career out of figuring out power and, and what it means to people. Uh, the book did very well, got over 700 ratings on Amazon, which is quite an achievement. If I was to guess on class's next book, I would imagine perhaps a book on Putin, a book on Trump, a book uh, on the rise of authoritarianism, Maloney, Erdogan, blah, blah, blah. We've done many shows on that. And I'd, of course, be absolutely wrong because class's follow-up book, of all things, to uh, Corruptible is a book called Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Uh, Brian Class is joining us from his home in Winchester, UK. The book's out next week. Brian, congratulations on the new book. Uh, uh, reversing the book, or perhaps as a way of introducing the book, what was the chance of you writing a book on chance as a follow-up to Corruptible? Yeah, it is, a, it is a departure for me, but it's been uh, a long time in the making because I think that any time that you write about social change as a political scientist or any social researcher, an economist, whatever it is, you're sort of forced to cram the messiness of the world into a very neat and tidy model. And I've always been very uneasy with that and a lot of the assumptions we have about the way the world works. And so this book is a, is a deep dive into that complexity and arguing that actually the world isn't so neat and tidy. And so, you know, even though I obviously stand by everything I wrote in Corruptible, I, I, I do think that there is a, an impulse among social researchers um, to clean up the messiness of our world. And that's what Fluke is trying to counteract. Let me... Revise the question, Brian. How, how much of a fluke is fluke? I mean, if you can go from being a, a writer on uh, on power, on Putin and Trump, um, to, uh, to to writing about flukiness and chance and chaos, then how do we make sense of anything? Yeah, I mean that's that's a big question uh, in terms of why anything happens, right? I mean, I think that one of the one of the titles that we batted around for this book was "Why Things Happen," right? It's a it's an ambitious question. Um, you know, I write in the first chapter about a fluke uh, that it's very important to me, and that is approximately the origin story of this book, but in a roundabout way, which is uh, a woman who decided to kill her her four children in Wisconsin in 1905 after she had a mental breakdown and then kill herself. And I put this in the first chapter of Fluke because this is my great-grandfather's first wife. And uh, wow. she snapped in this Wisconsin farmhouse in 1905. My great-grandfather comes home. His entire family is dead. And he later remarries uh, my great-grandmother. 
And so when I was in my mid twenties, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I was told this story. I had no idea about it, but it is quite literally true that not just I don't exist. My dad doesn't exist. My grandpa doesn't exist if this didn't happen, but also that you wouldn't be listening to my voice. And so when you start to peer at history, uh, I think that the wrinkles are really, really overwhelming. The stuff where the contingency plays out. I think when we get the sort of view of how change happens and people come on you know, to tell us, oh, if only you do these three things, then everything will turn out fine. That's what the, the model-based world uh, looks like. And so you know, for me, yeah, it's obviously a very strange thing for a political scientist to be batting around ideas from evolutionary biology and physics and so on. But I think those questions are actually central to how we understand the way the world works. Is it in some ways a, uh, a book by an intellectually frustrated political scientist who finds or who has found that the traditional boundaries of social science are inadequate? Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I, I write a few times in the book that I'm, I call myself a disillusioned social scientist. And I think there's serious problems with the way social research works. I also think there's a crisis of confidence about what it's for. I mean, most social research doesn't make predictions, but at some point, Social research is trying to help us navigate the world. So if we have a, a great causal model, but it actually doesn't work in the real world, is that really useful? And, and most of all, and this is the impetus for Fluke, you know, when I was looking at my own research, trying to condense things into a model with like five or six variables, when I would actually go out into, say, sub-Saharan Africa or you know, Southeast Asia and interview people, I was overwhelmed by the complexity and the messiness and the things that really matter that often you, know, you don't really see. And then we have this really clear cut X to Y story. I mean, the, sto the story that opens Fluke is a historical curiosity of the atomic bomb getting dropped on Hiroshima. And it, it starts in 1926 when a couple goes on vacation to Kyoto, Japan. And 19 years later, the husband from the couple is Henry Stimson, who is the Secretary of War during the, uh, the US end of the um, uh, World War II campaign. And he's tasked with overseeing the target committee, which is deciding where to drop the atomic bomb. And they pick Kyoto as their number one target. And he intervenes twice with Truman to get it taken off the list because he has a soft spot for Kyoto. And so if you were trying to model like where would the U.S. drop the atomic bomb, the vacation histories of government officials would not be one of the variables you'd include. But it is literally the reason why Kyoto was taken off the list is 19 years earlier, he liked it. And so I think that's the sort of stuff where, you know, whenever we try to find these patterns, uh, we end up simplifying reality in a world, in a, in a way that I think is dishonest. And I think it's sometimes uh, not very useful either. So it is a critique of social science as well as uh, a deep dive into the nature of change and causality and contingency. We are speaking to self-described disillusioned social scientist, uh, Brian Klaas, one of, uh, one of the leading political science experts on the nature of power. Uh, Brian, let me push back a little bit. Your, your, your last book, as I said, was Corruptible, did very well. You've written all sorts of other books on the rottenness of power. You co-wrote a book, How to Rig an Election. You wrote a book, The Despot's Accomplice, How the West is Aiding and Abetting the Decline of Democracy. Um, another book that's done very well. Uh, and then this book on Corruptible. It's no coincidence it's no fluke that we have the rise of despots of authoritarian self-described authoritarians all around the world just as you described yourself as a disillusioned social scientist uh donald trump I he probably described himself as a disillusioned human being or well, certainly the people who follow him are, are themselves disillusioned about any kind of idealism how would you respond to that that there's nothing flukiness about the r rise of 
authoritarianism. It almost seems inevitable that the Iowa caucuses are today, as I'm sure you know, it seems as if Trump's going to do incredibly well, astonishingly well for many of us. Um, so, so how would you respond to that critique that some, oh, I take your point on Stimson, okay, so he visited Kyoto in the 20s, and he decided it was a beautiful place, so he wasn't willing to drop a bomb on it, and he dropped it on Hiroshima instead. I take that point. But in these broader shifts, um, haphazard events are, are much less relevant. I, I disagree with that. I mean, I think the world does teeter between order and disorder. I'm not on the point of view that it's all contingency, it's all randomness, it's all chance, right? I, I don't believe that. There is order in the world as well. But, you know, with let's take Trump. So there is a significant uh, reason to believe, and some of the insiders around Trump talk about this, that the reason he decided to run for president uh, was that Obama roasted him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2011. And this was something where uh, he was humiliated publicly. And you think, okay, let's imagine that's true. I mean, it may, it, you know, it may be an apocryphal story. There's, there's speculation here, but let's just imagine it's true. So Trump doesn't run for president in, in 2016. Is the world going to be different? Absolutely. Is the, uh, is the rise of authoritarianism going to unfold in a totally different way? Yes. I mean, nobody would think that if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, that we'd be in the same world today, right? And yet a lot of political science around the presidency talks about institutions, not individuals. And I think the other thing is when you think about the 2016 election, I mean, 70,000 votes shift in three states, Hillary Clinton is president. I mean, the decision to reopen the FBI investigation days before the election may have played a role in that. So I think there's lots of contingencies where, you know, the Iowa caucus tonight, uh, the, 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 the sub-zero temperatures could affect the turnout. Now, it's probably not going to sway the election. But the margin that Trump runs up could be something that's important for later primaries and caucuses. So I, I think this idea that there's this sort of trends that we are powerless to affect uh, is incorrect. And one of the things that I like to talk about in, in, in Fluke and in, in the sort of nature of causality more generally is we have like a, a difference in how we think about contingency in the past versus in the present, right? Like we have this idea that like in the present, it's all trends and order and everything. And there's all these hypotheticals that talk about like time travel, going back in time, you know, don't talk to anybody, don't squish the wrong bug because you'll, you'll delete yourself from history or change the future. But like causality works the same way in the past as it does in the present, right? So whatever we do in the present is affecting which future exists. Now, some of the things are going to have massive consequences and some of them will have minor consequences in the short run. But, you know, we can't foresee what the actual long-term changes will be. So my great-grandfather's first wife did not know that she was going to produce a podcast conversation in 2024 when she murdered her, kill, her kids, right? But she did. And so, you know, I think this is some of the stuff where the way that we try to grapple with a, a sort of unbelievably interconnected reality in which small changes can have big effects is we just pretend they don't exist. And I think that's also true in politics, particularly because powerful people have a much greater role in swaying the world and their personalities can affect change very, very dramatically. So you're a disillusioned so so social scientist. Why not write a book on Pascal or, or, or someone else historic who grappled with these issues? Because these are not new issues about how things happen, why things happen. Well, I think there's some stuff that is new. Um, I have a chapter that is not going to make me any friends in the social science conferences I go to called The Emperor's New Equations. And it's, it's about the flaws in the ways that we quantitatively grapple with change. Um, and, I, and I think some of that is very new. I mean, I, I take your point completely. These are not new questions about causality. I mean, people like Hume and Pascal and all sorts of people like that. I mean, going back to the ancients, we're thinking about these questions. 
the way that we answer those questions has changed. And I think that you know we run a world on models. And the, pro the problem to me with that, and this is where it actually goes from an ab abstract conversation to a practical one, is that when you believe that you have certainty about the world because your model is showing you that if you just tweak these four or five variables, you can tame chance and chaos and, and basically make sure the world functions the way you think it does, well, then you're going to optimize the absolute limit. And so in the book, I talk a little bit about the mentality that's been produced by this and something from physics that I borrow called the sand pile model, where basically we're, we're optimizing to such a limit that small changes can have much bigger effects than they ever have before. So you know, the Suez Canal uh, boat is a great example here. One boat gets hit by a gust of wind, twists sideways, gets lodged in the canal, $54 billion of economic damage, about 0.4% of global GDP from one boat, right? That's never been possible in human history before. And I think part of that is because the interconnection has obviously increased, but so too has this false belief that we can tame the world. And I think that is a byproduct of endlessly modeling with flawed systems that try to reduce these sort of flukes and write them out of models of change. Who, who, who made the argument about the size of Cleopatra's nose determining most of history. I can't remember who it was, but it, yeah, it, it really reflects on your theme here. It does. So there's J.B. Burry is the historian that popularized this idea. And, and I think it is real. I mean, in the book, I have one genuine Cleopatra's nose moment that I talk about, which is uh, the, the, the probably the greatest scientific discovery of the 19th century almost didn't happen because of Charles Darwin's nose. Um, the, the captain of the Beagle, basically believed that the shape of one's nose could tell you about their personality. And he, he thought Darwin's uh, was an ill omen. And he almost rescinded the offer for him to come on the ship. So, you know, there's stuff like this where I think there are quite literal moments. There's also stuff where, you know, the, the classic example that's often touted in the sort of Cleopatra's nose or the, the contingency moments, uh, World War I is one of them. And the classic story of this is the, the, the way that the sort of fluky assassination happens in Sarajevo that launches World War I. I found another fluke before that, which is that the, the Archduke was almost assassinated several months before uh, in England when he went on a hunting shoot at Welbeck Abbey. And the loader of the gun slipped in the snow and a bullet went right over his, his shoulder. And, you know, you can imagine this would have been a different world. I can't say how would World War One still Apparently different. We had uh, Alexander Heeman, the uh, Bosnian-American novelist on who, who's brilliant new book begins in Sarajevo with the flukiness, the very, and that that's the quintessential example, I think, to support your argument, because that was a remarkable fluke that uh, Gavrilo Princip not so much wanted to assassinate the, 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 uh, the Archduke, but actually ac accomplished it. Um, Brian, I wonder whether your disillusionment as a social scientist, I don't think you're alone. You're, you're, you're able to articulate it in a very compelling way. I wonder whether your critique of social science, of the models, as you say, which you think are inadequate, whether it's a reflection of a bigger crisis. It's not just of the university. We know there's an obsession in now in America with the decline of universities, with the healthcare system, with democracy, whether this is another piece in the collapsing house of cards? Yeah, so I, I like this question a lot because I think one of the things that surprised me as I started to research flu, because I knew I would probably end up in science, but I also ended up in philosophy. Right? And I think one of the things that is, uh, is happening here is I think a lot of people in the modern world with rapid change and so on want to assert control. 
I think it's one of the things that's hardest for us to grapple with in the modern world, where our, our, our world is being upended all the time, right? There's not only massive upheavals and black swans. I mean, you've got the 9-11, the financial crisis, the Arab Spring, Brexit, you know, Trump, et cetera, uh, not to mention a pandemic. But also you have just technological change that is evolving so rapidly that few people can keep up with it. And you know now uh, children teach their parents how to live rather than the other way around with new technologies. And so you know I think there is this general malaise in modern life that is a, a sort of craving to control what feels like something that's teetering out of control. And that's where models come in, right? They're, they're, they're sort of the human ass assertion of taming all of these fluky, chancy events. And I, I think it's a I think it's a totally understandable impulse. I think it's also one that is somewhat misguided. Um, I also think one of the things that's cool about the worldview that I espouse in Fluke about the sort of ripple effects, the unforeseen consequences of small changes, is that actually individuals matter a hell of a lot more than we think we do. And I think that's another part of modern life that feels very unfulfilling to people is they feel interchangeable, right? AI is going to accelerate this even more, but it makes people feel like they don't matter. And I think one of the things that is 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 true scientifically is that every single action we do actually matters. I mean, we don't know the degree to which it will matter on short timescales, but I do think that we are reshaping the world uh, constantly. And I think that's something that models basically just pretend is not true. Well, we are speaking with Brian Class, the author of Fluke, a fascinatingly irreverent way of looking at social science, perhaps undermining social science, a return to human beings in our age of AI. One thing that isn't a fluke is Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics who are supporting, bringing us such high quality guests as Brian Klass. Um, gonna run a short feature on Liberties and then I wanna come back and talk with Brian more. He, he, just before the break, he talked about technology. I wanna talk specifically about the new technologies which are cha changing how we think about chance, chaos, and the nature of things. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. A very good decision. Nothing fluky about that one. We're speaking uh, with Brian Klass, uh, the UK-based uh, political scientist and author of an intriguing new book, Fluke. Brian, before the break, you talked about technology. Um, later this week, I, ha I have a science fiction writer who has a novel out about quantum history, about how quantum technology or quantum computing changes how we think about time, um, about the way in which perhaps time will repeat itself. Do you see these new technologies and particularly really radical post-Einstein physics as playing a role in, in how we think about the world and time itself? Yes. So, you know, the, the, when we think about the nature of time and change, uh, I think it's easy to forget in the modern world that there was this belief 
that we were about to be able to sort of understand most things because the world was seen as a clockwork universe, right? This is Newtonian mechanics and the sort of belief that if you just have the right measurements, you can actually predict the future. And you know, this is the thought experiment of Laplace's demon. Um, when quantum mechanics was discovered, I mean, there was a, a widespread viewpoint that this obliterates that mentality because there, as far as science can tell, the one thing that may be truly random in the universe is quantum behavior at the atomic and subatomic levels. And this is a very interesting question around uh, stuff that I do explore in Fluke, which is the question about determinism, indeterminism, fate, free will, all these sorts of questions. I, I don't think we have the answers. I mean, there's very highly verified experimental evidence that quantum mechanics is correct, or that at least that it can predict outcomes with extremely high levels of accuracy. What I don't think we have is an understanding of what's going on, right? Or what it means. And this is why you have things which are quite intriguing for someone like me who writes a book about contingency uh, in, in Fluke uh, with like the many worlds uh, belief of quantum mechanics, which is held by many physicists that the world is infinitely branching into infinite possibilities in which there's a near infinite number of copies of you every second, you know, there's just all this stuff is happening. And so I, I think it's useful, at least as a thought experiment, to think about the nature of contingency in that seemingly uncertain, seemingly random, possibly branching universe, which is just what would our lives look like if small changes had happened? And I talk about this idea of, of the snooze button effect, right? Um, which is basically imagine that you have a, a Tuesday morning, you hit the snooze button, and then your life rewinds and you don't hit the snooze button. And the question is, you know, what would be different about that? Now, some parts of our lives operate more on rails, right? This is what evolutionary biology calls convergence, where some things probably wouldn't change that much, but some things might change quite a lot and you'd probably be totally blind to them, right? You could meet different people that day. Conversations would differ. I mean, the ripple effects, if it's a bigger, more profound effect, maybe you get in a car accident, you know? So there, there's lots of things that I think do shift all the time. The point is that we tend to see backwards the important pivot points that we understand. What we don't see are the invisible pivots that we'll never know, right? Those are the, the snooze button moments because we can't imagine that something so small has actually diverted our trajectory. But I think when you think about history and you think about causality, it, it is true that the snooze button does change your life. It's just not clear um, how we could measure that or how we would know how profound each hit of the snooze button actually is. We talked, uh, Brian, about the size of uh, Cleopatra's nose, J.B. Berry, the British 19th century, I think British historian or 20th century, determining that it it shaped uh, what Caesar's invasion or what some uh, Roman uh, invasion of of, of Egypt. Um, I wonder whether there's a similar argument. I don't always like to bring up Hitler, but I can't resist today. Uh, uh, yesterday I was in Munich and I was at the uh, museum. There's an excellent new museum in, in Munich of uh, about Nazism. Uh, and one of the things that struck me was how central Hitler's moustache was to his identity. There were a couple of photos of him, one in short trousers, which made him look very gay, which is another story. But one where you could see what Hitler would look like without a moustache. And I think it would have radically transformed him. It's hard to imagine Hitler being Hitler without the moustache. What do you think would have happened? Can we come up with a counterfactual if... If Hitler, for one reason or another, of course, he could have been shot on the uh, uh, in, uh, on the Western Front, which would have changed everything. But what would have happened if he'd have shaved off his moustache? Yeah, th that is a good question. I think I think it would have mattered. I don't know how much it would have mattered. Um, I, I, I do talk about Hitler in the book as a as a brief counterfactual, 
And there's a, a, a poll that was done by the New York Times where they looked at whether you would travel back in time to kill baby Hitler if you could, right? And yeah. this, this is a question about utilitarianism versus Kantianism. Whether and it's a, no, it's a no, but I mean, it's hard to argue against that. Well, this is the interesting thing about it for me is that it's not actually a question about utilitarianism to me. It's a question about historical causality. It's a question about whether an individual shapes history or whether trends shape history, right? Uh, and Stephen Fry wrote a novel, it's not now relatively forgotten from the 1990s, where he imagined that he could travel back in time and make Hitler's dad infertile. And in this novel, actually it ends up worse because what happens is Nazism still rises. Hitler is not, he doesn't exist, but somebody who's more disciplined ends up in power. And they end up getting the atomic bomb before the allies and they win the war and Nazism wins in, in Europe. And I think this is the area where the questions around historical causality and counterfactuals are questions of the imagination, right? I mean, when something bad happens, we like to imagine that tweaking something in the past will produce a good outcome. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, a mass murder in Wisconsin in 1905 has given me the best moments of my life. I, my existence is owed to it. So sometimes terrible outcomes, or sorry, terrible changes in the past can produce very positive outcomes in the future and vice versa. And that's the complexity of, of the way the world works. Yeah, and, and it's a good argument actually about Hitler because if he wasn't so obsessed with the Jews, they would have been able to leverage, so to speak, Jewish scientists, Jewish science scientists and not Jewish science, but Jewish scientists, and they would have actually successfully built the bomb. Yeah. And this is, this is why I think, you know, there's, there's a sort of aspect where we are constrained partly by our, our brains, <laughs> but partly also by just the nature of, we have one world, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of actual uh, counterfactual imagining is constrained because we just simply can't know. Right. And this is, this is one of the big problems. I think the way we respond to that is by ignoring those questions. And I, th I think that that's, that's a huge mistake. I think there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from thinking counterfactually about the way the world works and also trying to imagine that sometimes very, very small changes have profound effects. There's a magnitude bias in uh, the way that we understand the world where when big things happen, we want a big outcome uh, to explain it. And it causes us to make mistakes um, because we just write out randomness. And there's a lot of psychology studies that show this, that we have an, basically a, an intellectual allergy to explaining negative news through randomness. Positive news we can accept. So if you win the lottery, people are more willing to say, okay, I got lucky. But when bad things happen, humans are totally averse to any explanation that says a small change, a random change, et cetera. And so I think we have a, a significant cognitive bias that basically causes us to write these things uh, out of history and out of our understanding of the modern world. You described yourself, Brian, as a disillusioned social scientist. Most disillusioned social scientists, I mean, historically have turned not so much to alternative social science, but to religion. Uh, you live in Winchester, great cathedral town in England. Uh, some people might be listening or watching this and thinking this guy should just, either this guy should spend more time in church or this time this guy spent too much time in church. Uh, how does religion fit or not fit into your argument in flute? Yeah, so I, I'm personally not religious. I don't believe in God, but I, but I think that this is something where uh, there is this sort of incredible mystery about the nature of, of change. I mean, my my view is that I don't have a cosmic purpose to my life. I mean, one of the things that writing writing this book forced me to grapple with some pretty big questions, and one of those is like, do I have a purpose in my life? Do I have a cosmic purpose rather? Right. I think the answer is no. I mean, there's stuff that I talk about in evolutionary biology 
where little things have, you know, affected the trajectory of humanity existing. I mean, one of my favorite ones is a, a shrew-like creature got infected with a single retrovirus a hundred million years ago, and that gave uh, rise to live births because it was the origin story of the evolution of placenta. So if that hadn't happened, it's unlikely that humans would exist, right? And when I think about that, some people look at that evidence if they accept it, and they'll say, "Oh, well, this is proof of God." Now, to me, it seems odd that the way that God would work was being by infecting a shrew-like creature, you know, 100 million years ago to make mammals. But you know, whatever. I mean, people have different views, and that's one of the things that's beautiful about. 8 billion conscious beings trying to make sense of these things. I, you know, I think I'm basically an accident. I think that I'm an accident on many levels. I'm an accident from uh, my great-grandmother, or sorry, my great-grandfather's first wife. I'm an accident from evolution. That doesn't bother me that much because I think that there's something uh, really amazing about being able to sort of interact with other people and shape the future and still derive meaning. These from are questions of you, your accidental nature. All the stuff yeah. you're addressing, Brian, is something that, uh, an entire corpus, a canon, is addressed for the last two or three thousand years. Sure. Yeah, but I think that new scientific evidence is causing us to think about these things differently, right? I mean, you know, the ancients were asking questions about what the meaning of life is, what's a good life, etc. You know, they didn't know about all these things. They didn't know the dinosaurs existed, and yet, you know, if the asteroid had been a second later, then the dinosaurs would not have been wiped out. Mammals would not have risen. So, I well, mean, if Heraclitus came back now, his famous original founder or the, the founder of the idea of history if he came back now how would he think differently why is he what what difference would all these scientific accomplishments over the last three thousand years how would they change heraclitus's view of the arbitrariness of things well i'm very glad you invoked that i have a chapter called heraclitus rules in the book and i i think he's one of the best thinkers about this topic in history um so i i don't think he would you might remind everyone brian of, of heraclitus's theory of history or language yes. theory of history. So he basically says that, you know, you cannot step twice in the same river. The most famous quote is you cannot step twice in the same river for you are not the same man. And the river is changed. I forget, I forget the exact quote, but it's the, the, the river, you, you change the river and the river changes the man and so on. And it's this idea that, you know, anytime you do anything in history, you're affecting uh, the outcome of events. So there's not some disembodied aspect of history uh, that all of us can just sort of look at. We're actually part of it, Right. And he has this ideas around randomness and uncertainty and questions around change. And, and I think he's a very astute early thinker on these topics. I think what's happened is we've forgotten some of these lessons, right? I mean, I think when you look at the way the world operates, there's not a whole lot of uncertainty uh, pushed back at you. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a, a brief section in Fluke where I talk about just from a personal level, I, you know, I occasionally go on TV uh, to talk about you know, what's happening in the world, the news, American politics, whatever it is. And the one thing you cannot say is, I don't know why this happened, or maybe this was just some sort of random accident. You always have to have an explanation, right? There's a, there's a massive bias that we have in explaining the world towards everything happens for a reason, right? A lot of people have that on like a, a pillow to comfort them, but they also use that as a sort of guidestone for uh, how to sort of navigate a really uncertain world. And I don't think when you turn on the TV, that you get a sense that nobody understands these things. I think you get a sense that stuff is falling apart, but don't worry, we've got great models that will fix it. Well, that's why your subtitle is so, we'll, we'll read quite traumatically for contemporary culture, chance, chaos, and why everything we do matters. If the world is dominated by chance and chaos, then we can't know what matters. It, it goes back to 
Weber's argument in the Protestant ethic that capitalism was caused by the the radical uncertainty of things that people wanted lots of money uh, because they had no idea of whether or not they were going to go to heaven. Is there a um, a Calvinist quality to, to to this argument? Yeah, so I think there is there is a it's it's not Calvinist in the same sense, but there is a sense of I mean, Calvinism has some elements of determinism in it, right? And and towards the end of the book, I talk about how I believe in in, in determinism, which is basically the idea that everything has a cause. But now, we don't know the cause. That's correct. Exactly. You're you're exactly right. But the problem with this, right, is that when you start to think about this hard, like it's a it's a very strange idea because if everything is caused by something that came before it, there's no end, right? And, and there's this unbroken string of causes, which end up going back to the Big Bang if that's the way that the universe started. And so, you know, that, that's a very strange thought that the word that is coming out of my mouth now is partly caused by this unbroken chain of events back to 13.8 billion years ago. You're right that there's uncertainty, right? And I think one of the things that is the 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 sort of summary of the book in a sentence, if, if I could give it that, is I have this line where I say, we control nothing, but we influence everything. And I think that's where the third part of the subtitle, why everything we do matters, it, it actually makes sense, even though we don't know the effects of our actions, right? So what does we, it tell us, uh, Brian, about the, Weber suggested that all this uncertainty created capitalism? Is all this uncertainty creating our, our current age of anxiety, our, our culture of therapy? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a I have a line in Fluke where I say something to the effect of, you know, we've created the most sophisticated and prosperous civilization in human history, and and millions of people need to medicate themselves to live in it, right? We have a yeah, we have a world a where, opinion. yeah, so you know, it's 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 a world that's really disorienting for a lot of people, and I think this the, the, what I was trying to do with Fluke is trying to explain, look. I think part of the reason for this malaise is that we've been we've been told a lot of lies about the way the world works, where you are interchangeable, you don't matter, you're unimportant. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of philosophical things that flow out of a view that chance plays a bigger role, chaos, play, chaos theory, and so on plays a bigger role in our lives, and they're not immediately obvious, right? Which it, it, it took me a long time to wrap my to wrap my head around them, but I think. There are for some people they end up in nihilism, right? Where they say, "Oh, it doesn't." Right, and we've done shows. So basically, could you, if we were to sort of summarize what you're saying, is our agency our lack of agency? So I don't believe in free will, but that doesn't mean that I don't have agency, right? Because free will is the question about the origin of my behavior. Uh, I can do things. I can make decisions. The question about free will is whether I'm independently causing them or, or or if the physical basis of my body is causing them. I think the latter, right? But yeah, I mean, I think I think we are empowered beings who can shape events in the future. Uh, I think there's questions about the origin of our behavior, which I talk about in the book. But I think there's there's uh, no question that we have agency as individuals to to well, shape. We just can't shape. So in a sense, you're returning to sort of an absurdism, maybe going back to the the Stoics or, or, or a kind of surrealism where everything is uncertain. We have no idea of everything is chance and chaos, but it doesn't seem as if we're affecting things. It, it, it makes us increasingly lonely. I wonder whether you feel lonely. Your work has been compared, this new book's being compared to Malcolm Gladwell, which I always think is a bit of a kiss of death when it comes to new books. Is there a a school emerging, uh, Brian, of, of this kind of thinking? Where would you fit yourself now? You're a disillusioned social scientist. Where have you fled to? Where's some solid ground here? 
Well, I feel I feel better that I have before I wrote the book because I actually grapple with some difficult questions and came up with some answers that I think are are worthwhile. But um, you know, I think when it comes to other people who are thinking about this topic, I mean, there's a, a lot of work done by Mervyn King, for example, the former governor of the Bank of England, yeah. uh, on radical uncertainty, which I think is very, very effective. Um, and I think he's right to point out some of these areas where we have severe radical uncertainty. I don't believe that everything is chance. Uh, I, I think that there are moments of contingency in which small changes can make profound effects. And I think that there is a world that we navigate somewhere between order and disorder. I think we're being told we're much more on the side of order than is accurate. And that's the counterfact, sorry, the, the uh, corrective that I hope to bring to the book. Uh, with well, finally, Brian, um, what, what would, if you had, if you could go back in time and change one thing in your own life, what, what would it be? I think if I'm honest about that, there is no answer because I think the probably the most important thing that happened to me, I'm unaware of. Um, you know, I, I, this this is the thing where when you think about there's that film Sliding Doors, which looks at small changes and how it diverts your life. I think I'm probably completely blind to the thing that would most affect my life in the past. Um, but, I, you know, there, there's lots of stuff that's the big building blocks that we think about. I mean, where I went to undergrad, where I decided to go to grad school, all those things shape my life and so on. Um, I, my, my view on this, and this is something that the, you know, the, the short story writer Borjas grapples with in this in this great a uh, short story called The Garden of Forking Paths. Mm. You know, I think that I basically don't know is the answer to that question. It sounds like a cop-up, but I genuinely believe that this is an important point. The, the most important things that happen to us are often derived from changes and diversions in our lives that we're completely blind to. Um, and, and that is something that I also think is true of society. I think there's a lot of near misses and near hits um, that we never know about. And that's something that profoundly shapes our world.